I hope our journey through Luke in this Lenten season has been a blessing to you already. If you're kind of new to Harvest Point, let me tell you what's going on around here. When we start the Lenten season, we read through a gospel together, and we are reading through the gospel of Luke right now. If you have that message outline, let me invite you to grab that for a minute and turn it over to the back side. There's a big black box on the back. And you'll notice that every week I've been giving you what we call bite-sized scriptures, and we're reading through the Gospel of Luke together, starting the beginning of Lent, so that when we get to Easter, actually we have read through an entire Gospel of Luke together. And, and we are really just saying, God, well, how, did, how did Jesus, how was Jesus viewed through the eyes of Luke? By the way, if you haven't started reading this yet, and maybe this is even your first Sunday, why don't you pick up now? Join us. You'll see right there, we're, in, we're, we're reading four different chapters this week, 12 through 16. Join us on this journey as we grow closer towards the Easter celebration. And, and also, this series is about nobodies, right? You know, when I thought, I was thinking this past week about Luke, I've read, I've read the Gospel of Luke so many times, and when I think about Luke, there are two telltale signs that keep jumping out at me over and over again. One is the word authority. Luke oftentimes uses the word authority. He, he, it's almost as if everywhere Luke interviewed people, he just realized that they kept talking about how powerful Jesus was. He spoke differently. He had authority that nobody else had ever had before. Luke, different than every other gospel, talks about authority over and over again. But then Luke also, in every one of his stories, it seems like, points to the nobodies. Now, you remember what we've talked about, right? Luke was writing to a guy named Theophilus. Luke had never met Jesus, and he was interviewing people, and he was putting his account down in writing. So we find ourselves today in a story, and I'm going to read through the whole thing, and then we're just going to pray, and we're going to, uh, we're going to study it little piece by piece together. And we're going to try to get the picture of this story that Luke is sharing, that he heard, and we're going to get a picture of the nobody that comes into a somebody's home. And we're going to see what Jesus does in that moment. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me there, or maybe you just want to read it off your outline. We're going to read from the Gospel of Luke together about a Pharisee that has a sinful woman, a prostitute, join him in his home. So from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet... He would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned towards the woman and he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. Therefore, I tell you, 
her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I hear a scripture like that, and for some of us in the room, we've heard that scripture so many times. And others of us, maybe we're hearing it for the very first time. It's a real story. It really happened. And in this moment that was probably very intimate, it's probably so intimate that you could hear a pin drop in the room, it's in this moment that Jesus chooses to give a teaching to a Pharisee. Now, I just want to submit to you as we start this message today that that Pharisee, Simon, probably knew more than any of us in the, in the room about the law of Moses. He probably had read the Old Testament more than any of us put together in the room. He was a very religious man, maybe more religious than any of us, and having more academia knowledge about the law and about Israeli culture, Jewish culture, than any of us. And yet he was learning something that day. <laughs> I don't know about you, but me. Even while I preach this message today, I want to learn something. I want God to speak over me. As we begin today to study God's Word, can you just pray with me just a prayer of openness that whatever God might speak over you, whatever seed He might want to plant inside of you, how about this one? Wherever the potter might want to bend and reshape you, that you would be open to that? Would you do that with me? Let's pray together. You know all. You know everything, God. You know even the thoughts that we have on our mind that nobody else knows. You know us at the core of our being. You know our tomorrows. So what better thing to do than to sit at your feet for a little while and just have you instruct us. Would you be a good heavenly father to us? Would you bend us? Would you shape us? Would you mold us? Would you shape us? Would you, would you encourage us? Would you prod us? We want your word to be born in us. So we just pray a prayer of openness right now that you would put the word of life, truth, eternal truth, deep in our soul, that it would bear fruit for us, for the work you've called us to do in the kingdom and the families that we are part of and the church we are building. Lord, we just pray that your truth would be deep inside of us. Come, speak your word over us, and we will listen and we will learn. This is our prayer, Lord Jesus, and we pray this in your most holy name. Amen. I provided an, a, a piece of paper for you there, and we always have that here at Harvest Point. And, and let me tell you why we do that. Sometimes there will be fill in the blank. Sometimes there will be, you know, different things I'm asking you to do. In this series, I'm leaving just on the right-hand column a complete uh, notes section. And my hope is that there will be some places in the Scripture where I might invite you to underline something or circle something. But in the margin, in the notes section, my encouragement to you would be that you would write down Maybe something that you would learn that was new. I hope, to be, I hope you'll learn something new today that you didn't already know. But I also hope that maybe you would write down something you want to remember and then hold on to those notes. But maybe most importantly, you would write down when you know that God is beginning to say something over you, it'd be, it might be a good thing just to write that down so that it becomes something more than just in your mind and your heart. It actually moves through your hand too. So 
do with those notes, if you will, what you will. Now, let me remind you, Luke uh, was a physician by trade. He was a doctor. But Luke became a follower of Jesus, and according to the opening chapters of the Gospel of Luke, there's, there's p- probably a guy named Theophilus that has hired him to go write his account of Jesus. And Theophilus may have been a Christ follower, and at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, Luke says, this is the account, and he, he most excellent Theophilus, and he gives it to him. And so I've reminded you every week that Luke is writing to a somebody. He's writing to a somebody who's probably got a lot of money and a lot of power. And over and over again, the Gospel of Luke, what Luke keeps telling that somebody is when Jesus came, he was ministering to nobodies. I mean, he, he, his, his mission field were the nobodies. That's who Jesus was going after. And now, so let me break that down for you so that you understand. As many of you have been reading through the Gospel of Luke and you have seen something even though you may have not recognized it. There is a, there's a literary device that Luke uses, but it's more than a literary device because it's actually, he's telling the story as he's hearing the eyewitness account. Every story that he hears, there's always two different entities going on. There, there is one figure, and it's versus another figure, okay? There's a, there's a nobody, and there's a somebody. And Jesus is coming into interaction with a nobody and a somebody. And in every one of these stories, if you look for the nobody, if you find the somebody, they'll be there. So, for example, Jesus is, Jesus is telling a parable about a dad who had two boys. You remember that one? And one of them ran off, and he squandered everything. He lost it all. I mean, he was, uh, he was, he was not even a son to his father anymore. And he comes back begging. He's lost everything. He's lost his father's entire inheritance that he was given. He's done all this sinful junk. He comes back begging just a nobody. I mean, he is a nobody. He's worthless. He says, if you just let me be one of your servants, I'm nothing. I'm nobody. I'm so sorry for what I've done. And the father runs to him and says, no, you are a somebody. But maybe you'd also remember that story. There's another son there, right? And that son's done all the good stuff. He's done all the right stuff. He's never been a, a bad son. He's a, he's a somebody's son. And you have to ask yourself, when you read this story of the father with the two boys, who's the lost one? Who's the one who's really lost? Is it the one who can't celebrate his brother coming back home? Because why would my father accept that nobody? You see, in every story, there's a nobody and a somebody. Jesus is teaching about, we call it today the Good Samaritan. Everybody knows that passage, right? He talks about a guy who gets barraged by bandits on a road from Jerusalem to Jericho and and if you watch the story, and it's a, it's a story that Jesus tells, Luke says, somebody after somebody after somebody walks right by him. And the somebodies don't do anything for him. But then a Samaritan comes. Everybody knew a Samaritan was nobody, right? And then a Samaritan comes. You see what Luke does? Luke is just telling us the stories, but he makes it so clear who the somebody was and the nobody. Today, in today's scripture, there's a nobody, right? A prostitute. A prostitute comes into a Pharisee's home, and we get a chance to see the heart of God. Who is Jesus going to minister to? Who is Jesus after? Does he even care about the nobodies? And over and over again, Luke is writing to Theophilus, and he's saying, here's who Jesus is, and I think this means this is the heart of God, that Jesus cared for nobodies, that he went after nobodies, and God must care about nobodies because that's who he was after. And so let's dive into the scripture for today, okay? Pharisee. It was a Pharisee. 
Now, most people, they know that name. They know that a Pharisee was a very religious person. They even know that the Pharisees were the ones who were plotting to kill Jesus and yelling, you know, stirring up the crowd, crucify, crucify, right? Pharisee. Pharisee is an, uh, literally the word means separated one. You might want to write that down. It means separated one. It comes from an Aramaic term. And the Pharisees were these religious leaders who some would even call lawyers. They were the most studied people in the land. They were the most educated people in the Jewish society. They were, they were lawyers in the sense that they knew the Mosaic law front and back, and it was their job to all the Jewish culture and to all the Jewish religion to determine how you followed the law. More than what the law said in the, in the, from the words of Moses in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, more than what it said, how do we live it out? And the Pharisees were the, were the vocabulary, the, the spoken word for giving direction for how to follow the law. Now, let me pause for a minute. You've probably heard the, also the term Sadducees. You ever heard that term? The Pharisees and the Sadducees. You ever heard that before? You can consider Pharisees and Sadducees kind of like modern-day denominations, okay? The Sadducees were actually once Pharisees, but they had split off from the Pharisees, and now they were called Sadducees. And um, now, the, here's the point. Both Pharisees and Sadducees were the most religious people, educated people. They were lawyers. They knew, the, they knew the, the scriptures front and back, and they were the voice into the culture. They were the most holy people in the culture. The only difference was the Sadducees did not believe in an afterlife. And so they separated them. They, they, they started a new sect called the Sadducees. I had a professor in, in, uh, in college one time that wanted all the students to understand and remember what the Sadducees were different, how they were different. And so he said something, and I knew I'd never forget it from that moment. He said, here's how you remember who a Sadducee is. They didn't believe in a heaven. They didn't believe in an afterlife. That's why, that's why they were sad, you see? <laughs> oh, now you'll remember it, won't you? You'll always know about the Sadducees. that they, didn't, they, they were just like Pharisees, but they just did not believe in heaven and an afterlife. Now, this story is about a Pharisee. And as a matter of fact, he was probably in his house with a bunch of other Pharisees. And so now watch this. A Pharisee. The Pharisees were not only the most religious people in Israel at that time, but the Pharisees, this is the way they lived. They, they did not associate themselves with people who were common people or people who were, were sinners and in sinful trades like tax collecting or in this case prostitution. They just didn't associate. Now let me say that differently. They would teach, they would minister to people that were in the common culture, to people who were sinners, but they would never have meals with sinners. They would never just be in a close quarters. They just didn't do that. See, people who were Pharisees, people who were Sadducees, they lived, they dined, they fellowshiped with other people who were seeking after this highest level of religious piety. And, and by the way, in, in that culture, Almost none of us in this room would have been a Pharisee. It's too hard. I mean, you had to always, you never even appeared to be doing evil. You were always seeking to live above the levels of anything that looked like it was unholy. And, and the big thing is that they lived, dwelt, they were around all the time people like them, other Pharisees who were trying to be holy and righteous and living this pious life. Now, one of the things that I, I learned about Pharisees were that they understood what the law was. They kind of put a boundary. Think of a fence. They put a boundary around the Mosaic law. They knew what it was. Matter of fact, most people in, who were devout Jews knew what the law was. And their job was then to go back and say, okay, now 
how can we put some extra stuff around the law? Theologians call it the hedge of the law. Picture now a fence with a hedge outside it so that you can't even get to the fence to cross over the fence. You can stand on this side of the hedge. You can't even get to the fence. And if you crossed over the fence, that would be sin. You'd be breaking the law. And so, for example, if they were talking about we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, they would, they would understand. And then they'd ask themselves, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to work on the Sabbath? Somebody needs to define that. And so they would, draw up, they would build a hedge around the law. And they would, so for, for, the, for the Pharisees, for example, they developed 39 categories, categories with all these things underneath it, 39 categories of what work was on the Sabbath. And, and so they knew, and they, so for example, one of those categories was um, distance traveled, and you could only walk so far or you would be considered working. Another one of those categories was things that you would do with your hands. And so, for example, they could not tie knots on the Sabbath. They could not uh, thresh or pluck wheat or grain on the Sabbath. That was work. They had these categories. They had the law. And their job, understand, for the society, they saw their job as being, we are going to not only understand what the law is, but we are going to define the law with a hedge outside of it so that nobody would cross over and break God's law. They were the determining factor. They were the people who communicated this is right and wrong in the culture. You couldn't even walk a certain, you, you couldn't walk a distance with a quart of liquid. They had rules. They had laws. You understand that? They were a people of rules. They were a people of laws. That's who they were. Now let me pause here for a minute. Many of us, we grew up in a religious culture like this. We don't talk about it a lot, but some of us grew up in a house filled with a lot of law, a lot of rules. I mean a lot of stuff that's not necessarily even in the Bible, right? Right? I mean, I, I was told what kind of music I could listen to and what kind of music was of the devil, right? And if you know what I'm talking about, I mean, I just saw a bunch of heads to shake up and down. Some of us in this place, <laughs> I see you, Bobby and Billy. Randy had y'all burn all those things, didn't he, right? I've heard those stories, right? So can, can we just, can I just, I need to drive home something for a minute. There's something very good, something very good about understanding what is right and wrong, what the Bible says is right and wrong. But sometimes you can go so far in a family saying, well, this is right and this is wrong, or, or in a church. You can get so legalistic about the way people ought to live and what they ought to do and the way, you know, women ought to dress or not do this or what, you know, you can get so legalistic. Jesus came into that culture and there was a whole group of people who were bringing the law over the culture. It's in that culture that Jesus came. And you might want to write a couple of things down. Here's some of the things that I notice when, when your faith is tied in with a bunch of do's and don'ts and laws. When your faith is all about the rules, there's, there's some big-time dangers and there's some big-time challenges, and you, you, it has helpful to realize what those dangers and challenges are. One of the first ones is this. When your faith is tied into what you do, when your faith is tied into what the rules are, what I've found is that because you're trying to do all this stuff and do it the right way, your faith can easily become about what you do, and, and you end up with the question, will I ever be able to do enough to be accepted? You, 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 wanna, you understand that your faith is so tied to how you act and what you do, it gets very dangerous, and you start to really miss the point. 
Somebody once said, religion, true religion should never be spelled D-O. It should be spelled D-O-N-E. Christ has done it for us. Why do we think we've got to do and to do and to do? Why do we live that way? And, but, but let me tell you, if your faith is tied in with rules and religion and law, for you it will always be this challenge to think, have I done enough? What more can I do? And it's so easy to miss the point. That's at least the first challenge or danger I can see when you tie your faith to rules. Another danger that I think is there when you tie your faith to rules is that you can start to focus in on, you have a tendency to focus in on the rules and the laws and forget about God and forget about people. And that's certainly the story we're going to read here today, right? I mean, it's about the rules, it's about the laws, it's about living a certain way, and it's so easy to forget that the reason you're trying to do it is to love and run towards God. You forget about God. It's all about the law. It's all about the rules. You forget about people. That's a huge danger when you try, tie your faith to, to law or to rules. By the way, that kind of faith and rules thing, let me tell you what wins every time, the rules. Because the rules suck the life out of the faith. That's just the way it works. Here, here's one last great, great, great danger that is there whenever you tie your faith to law or to rules. It becomes very easy for you to look at yourself and compare yourself to other people and think you're better than them. My mind goes right now to Jesus telling the story of a, a Pharisee who was approaching the temple and a tax collector. In their culture, tax collectors were viewed as sinful. You remember that? And the Pharisee was going to the temple to pray, and the tax collector was going to the temple to pray, but he stood far off. He bowed down, did not even go to the temple, beat his chest, and cried out that he was a sinner. And you remember Jesus' story. The Pharisee looks at him and goes, his prayer is this, thank you, God, that I'm not like him. You remember that? Jesus' teaching is basically the Pharisee said, God, you are so lucky to have me. I am so good. I just do the right thing all the time. You see? See, it's a dangerous thing whenever you tie your faith to laws or the rules because you can get a self-piety, a self-righteousness about you. Jesus' question at the very end of that passage, you remember? He said, who went home that day justified forgiven of their sin? It was the nobody. <laughs> it was the tax collector who beat his chest from far off. It wasn't the Pharisee who had that self-righteous, pious attitude. Am I making any sense? Does that make any sense? So Jesus comes into this culture of religiosity, of these Pharisees and Sadducees, who not only understand the law, they're defining the law with even a hedge around the law, and they've probably lost sight of God in some places, and they've probably lost sight of people in some places. And here comes this radical Messiah. <laughs> and he keeps doing stuff that don't fit into their rules. For example, one of their rules was you cannot heal on the Sabbath. That's work. And Jesus keeps doing it. And they go, why would you keep healing on the Sabbath? Stop it. That's what they keep doing. Or for example, Jesus and his, you remember this story? Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field and they're hungry. And they pull off some grain. They pluck some grain as they're walking the field. And guess who's following them? All the religious band back there. And they take it and, and see what you would do. You'd pick some grain. You would kind of rub it in your hands, get the husk off of it. That was considered work. That's threshing. That's threshing. Stop it. And they look at, they look at Jesus and they say, 
why do you let your disciples do this? They're breaking the law. Why would you do that? You remember this moment. This is a big moment. Jesus breaks their paradigm. He looks at them and he says, I like to say it my way. Hey, listen, get this. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. New idea for them. Because the Sabbath, the law. You know what Jesus was saying, just a nutshell there? What Jesus was saying was, the law was put there the rules were there to help you, not to keep you from doing, not to blind you so you can't even see God or people anymore. The law was not put there to, to suck the life out of you so that you're always after the law. He said, that's not it. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for us. Do you see what Jesus is communicating there? New idea for them. I don't think they got it because they were still all about the rules. You get that picture? Now, if you understand that, let me just share a final things, and we're going to get into this scripture. There were some Pharisees who heard Jesus and then believed Jesus. Maybe you remember one, his name was Saul. Saul was a Pharisee, and he had a radical salvation experience, and he was renamed Paul, and he became a powerhouse in the church. But, but Saul was a Pharisee. Maybe remember that Pharisee named Nicodemus who was so afraid to be seen with Jesus, he comes at nighttime by himself. And Nicodemus becomes a Christ follower. You know, when Jesus died and was resurrected, there were probably scores of Pharisees and Sadducees who became Christ followers. Historians tell us that there were many who became followers of Jesus. But what I want to point out real quickly before we dive into the scripture for the day is if you, if you knew what Jesus was like, if you knew how much Jesus, Jesus was a very good Jew. He was a very good Jew. And in many ways, Jesus in his day could have been viewed as a Pharisee. But there's one big difference. There's several differences, but there's one, one huge difference. The Pharisees, by their very name, were separated. They viewed themselves as separated from the sinners. That's the big difference. Jesus viewed sinners as his mission field. He lived, walked, talked, he ministered to in the midst of sinners. They looked at Jesus and they said, he eats with tax collectors. He, he dines with sinners. It's foreign to them. They don't understand it. Therein lies the big difference for Jesus. And if you can get that, now you understand that Jesus is sitting in their home. He's sitting in Simon the Pharisee's home when a prostitute comes through the door and ain't nobody expecting her. Let's read it together. The Bible says... Um, in that passage from Luke, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. You might want to underline that word recline. You have to understand that, that word in order to understand what's going to happen when this woman comes in. He reclined at the table. It was a Jewish custom in, in their day to not sit in chairs like we sit in chairs, but actually to, to recline at a table much like with your head and your hands closer to the table and your feet further away, and it, it just kind of promoted conversation and culture. And so you see these disciples at this particular picture just kind of leaning into the table with their feet away from the table, their hands and their bodies and, and their faces closer to the table. And Here's another picture of the same thing. They normally sat at a U-shaped table that, that had three sides. It was even called a triclinium by the very shape of the table. That's a sculpture there. 
And they would dwell on the outside. Servants would often serve from the inside. But if you can see it, they're, they're leaning into the table. They're laying, their feet are away from the table. Their faces are closer to the table. Sometimes they would be uh, on the floor or on pillows. Sometimes they would be on a, on a small kind of bench-like stool and, and that was comfortable. And they would just be sitting up off of the ground with their feet away from the table and their faces close to the table. Now let's go back to that scripture. So Jesus is in the home of a Pharisee. He is reclining at the table. His feet are further away from the table. And it says this, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life. We know that was the life of a prostitute because other gospel writers tell us who she actually was in her profession. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, envision just a small jar of perfume. One gospel writer tells us it was worth about a year's wages. Now, let's just, we don't really know what a year's wages for us as a crowd is, but let's just imagine, can you imagine a jar of perfume or a jar of cologne actually worth, we'll just say, $40,000, $45,000? Can you imagine that for a minute? $40,000, $45,000. This is what she comes with. In their day, a year's worth wages. She came there with an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. This is not some small amount of tears. Then she wiped them with her hair. More than likely, she would have had to lower her hair, which was somewhat of a scandalous thing for a prostitute to do. She would have lowered her hair and then began to wipe off his feet from her tears. She kissed his feet. And she poured perfume on them. Now, we've already read the rest of the story, and we know what Jesus is going to say, but can I just ask you for a minute a question? Here's my question. When you see this woman, what do you see? Can we put a picture up there of her? I I don't know what it looked like, but here. I said a few weeks ago, sometimes our eyes completely control our ability for our heart to feel. What you see in this woman or what you cannot see in this woman will determine how well you really understand whether she's a nobody or somebody. One person would say, when I look at this story, I see extravagance. I mean, forty, forty-five thousand dollars she's pouring it on top of him, and, and she's, that's amazing. Had she met with Jesus? Had, had he spoken to her early in the day? Had she been on the side of a ministry watching him? What's going on in her heart? Whatever it is. She's willing to do something generous and extravagant to meet him in this moment. This is big. This is out there. Another person might say, for me, the thing I see, I see repentance. I mean, I see a heart that is just crying and weeping. I don't know what's going on in her heart or what she's thinking about herself. And I don't even know, maybe she heard and saw and felt that a holy man, a truly perfect and holy man was in the town, and maybe it confronted her in her sin. 
Maybe it hit her hard where she was. Maybe she became aware of how dark she had been living. Maybe she just felt like she had, she had to say, I'm sorry. Another person might say, you know what I see? I see scandal. I see a prostitute in Jesus. I see something that borders almost on the line of sexuality or something. I see tears and wiping of feet and hair and who does that and what was going on in the room when all this was going on? I mean, those who were in the room must have just been going, what is happening? We were having a nice dinner. What is, what's going on? Another person might say, you know what I see? Check, check, check. They say when these lapel mics bite the dust, they bite the dust. It must be gone. Another person would say, I see love. I mean, who would do this? I, I just see that she's loving on Jesus. And I see Jesus loving her back when nobody else in the room would. There's a lot of different perspectives, but let me tell you, Simon, he tells us what he saw. It's right there in the Bible. Read it with me. The Bible says about Simon, says, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner or that she is a prostitute. Remember what I said, Simon's a Pharisee. Pharisees are separated. You, don't, you, you just don't allow this to happen. And so certainly Jesus can't be a, a prophet because maybe he doesn't know who this woman is and he doesn't know what this woman's done because he is just allowing her to do all of this stuff. You know, for Simon, I guess, I guess more, than, more than extravagance or, or, or repentance or, or scandal or love or anything else you might say, gratitude, you know what Simon sees? Simon looks at Jesus and he says, you are, you're very different from me. I would not allow this to happen to me. This is not right. Jesus, how? I don't know. And you don't know either. Jesus knows what's going through Simon's mind. <laughs> Did Jesus know his thoughts, just know his thoughts? Or could he hear his thoughts? We don't know. But we know that Jesus addresses his thoughts because it says Simon said that to himself, right? And so look what Jesus says. It says, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. And then Simon basically says, okay, fire away. You okay? What is it? He said, go ahead, teacher. Jesus said, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii. A denarii is a day's wages, okay? The Bible tells us that in another place. That's what a denarii is. And so 500 denarii is almost 200, I'm sorry, it's almost two years wages, all right? Picture somebody owing you almost two years of wages. There was a certain man who owed almost two years wages, 500 denarii, and, the, and then the other one owed him um, 50 denarii, 50 days wages, about two months. 
Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Jesus said, you have judged correctly. So so you see what Jesus is saying here. He knows what's going on in Simon's mind, and really what he's saying is, you, you can't even see what's happening right now. I dare say that he actually thought to himself, not only you, Simon, you can't see what's going on right now, but everybody else in this whole room, all of y'all are seeing the wrong thing. You're seeing just something that ain't there. You're seeing some. you're just missing the whole point. You're missing the cosmic moment that is going on in this very room right now. You can't see it. And I just want to tell you, while we're journeying through Luke together, I hope that you're becoming more and more aware of the nobodies that are all around you. And I hope you're starting to see things better than you saw them when we first started. But Jesus is wanting us to see what's going on here. And so notice, notice what happens. Notice this next phrase, this next sentence. Matter of fact, get your pen out if you don't have it already, because the whole sermon comes down to right here. Jesus says this. The Bible says, Then he turned toward the woman... Notice he's not looking at Simon anymore. He's not eyeball to eyeball with Simon. Who's he looking at? He turned towards the woman and he said, Simon, underline this, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? See, we read that. We read that and we rush on. But but stay there. You want to get the power of what's going on in this scripture? Sit in that. Do you see this woman? No. He didn't see her. He saw what she did. He saw that she's a prostitute. He knew who she was. That's all he could see. Jesus can actually see the woman. Can we just imagine? Can we sit in just kind of a spiritual imagination zone for a minute? Can you imagine what Jesus saw? I mean, think about a prostitute right now on the streets of Atlanta. See, one time she was a little girl, wasn't she? And no little girl ever dreamed of growing up one day becoming a prostitute. She had hopes. She had dreams. She had gifts. She had life. She had purpose. She had a family that loved her. Simon can't see any of that. Jesus probably sees it all. He says, do you see this woman? No, I can't see her. Jesus probably knew everything about her. He knew what she was doing when she was 15 and 20 and 25. He knew probably what was going on in her heart as she cried those tears. She'd wandered so far away from her family or maybe that she'd even been sold into prostitution. He knew what what was in her soul. He knew how hungry she was to... Leave that life and become forgiven and whole and free again. And Jesus looks at him and said, do you see this woman? Guys, we live around nobodies every day. They're everywhere. The people of society says they don't matter. They look at who they are. They're, they're, They're a mess. There are people with mental illnesses, people with sin in their lives, people who we look at them and they just don't matter to us because we're on a different plane. The Pharisee was on a much different plane. He was on such a good plane for him that he couldn't see her. See, 
live in that for a minute. What did Jesus see? And what did she feel like everybody else in the room saw? And, and by the way, we were studying this in a small group the other night, and, and I just got to say, what kind of courage was in this, room, this woman? What kind of urgency was in her to walk into a Pharisee's house? She had to get to Jesus to bring a jar worth a year's wages and start pouring it on him and crying and weeping over him. I mean, she didn't care. She didn't care what religious people thought about her. She didn't care what was right and wrong. She cared that she had to get to Jesus. Something had happened. Maybe a day before or that earlier that day, something had happened in his ministry out there in the streets, and it had touched her so deeply she had to get back to him. And she pours herself out over him, and he can see all of her, and nobody else can. So, so watch what happens says, then he turned towards the woman. He said, Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head. She's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. I read a story like this and I go back to, this is going to sound goofy to some of you guys, but I go back to my childhood when my yard was the yard that all the kids in the neighborhood came to. They came to my yard and uh, we played uh, baseball in the backyard, football in the front yard and Frisbee in the street. And, um, and, there were some power lines that ran across my front yard, and whenever we would throw a pass and it would hit the power lines, we would all yell the same phrase. You know what we would yell? Do over. <laughs> do over. I mean, even when it first hit, you know, if, especially if you were the quarterback and you threw that ball, do over. And we would go back. If it was third down and four, you know, or, or third down and one completion, we'd go back to that spot right there, and we'd get a chance to do it over, do it over. You know, this woman, she gets an eternal do-over in that moment. She gets a, a, an eternal do-over. And let me tell you, according to Jesus, from what he can see, and evidently what even everybody else in that room can see, she's a woman that's steeped in sin. She's done a lot of wrong stuff. But it doesn't matter how much she's done. She still gets a do-over. And sitting in that room, there are these people who are looking and criticizing the moment, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. The other guests say, Who is this that even forgives sins? Jesus wants us to note that, that Luke wants to show that Jesus is God. Who is this that forgives sins? But Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in, you might want to circle that word, peace. In the Hebrew, in the the, um, Greek, it would have been shalom. It would have been been, uh, wholeness. Go in wholeness. You've been made whole. Go right, restored. Go having made peace with God. Go with everything fixed. That's what Jesus is saying. Peace. Go in wholeness. You've been made whole. Let me say that a little differently, especially for this series we're in. Jesus looked at her and he basically said, what I've been saying to you, that every story Luke keeps showing us, he looks at her and he says, you know what? I know you. I see you. And understand this. I came for you. I love you. You are a somebody. 
And nobody else knew that she was a somebody, but Jesus could see things others couldn't see. And I just want to close this sermon by saying two things. Who cares? Literally, who cares who the most righteous person in the room is and who is the person with the most sin? I mean, who cares? At the end of the day, what really matters is that if you're the righteous, you still have sin. And if you're the one who has the most sin, you have sin. And everybody here needs a do-over, right? I mean, we all need a do-over. Just like this woman, every one of us needs a do-over. And the Bible, according to what Jesus says, is those of us who have the most sin in our lives, when we get our do-over, great is our love. I mean, our, we realize how much we've been saved from. Remember, I remember all those people last week who talked about what they got saved from? We know what we've been saved from because we had so much junk in our lives. And if there's two huge takeaways to this message today, the first one is the same message that we get every week out of Luke. It's open your eyes and see people for who they really are. See them the way God would see them. Because there ain't a nobody walking the planet. There's a some, everybody's a somebody. And the job of Christ followers, if you really want to be a somebody, is to have eyes that see nobodies and tell them, God came for you. Jesus loves you. He knows your name. You are a somebody. That's the job of every Christ follower, to do his work. Not to play games and say, okay, we're going to be Pharisees. We're just going to separate ourselves. No. We understand that we've been called to be like Jesus. We, that's our mission field, to love the nobodies, to get in there with them and love them and point them to the somebody who made all the difference. That's the first big message. But listen, you can't read this passage and not understand the power of the second message. And that is today you came to church to hear a message about a do-over. And we sang we sung a song. Matter of fact, the last song that they had planned to do today, I told them you can't do it. you got to change. you got to go back to the song we just did right before this message that Jody's playing right now. And we need to hear a message of how much we need God. Remember that song? Oh, living water, oh God, my Savior. You remember that? If I ever needed you, I need you now. See, when you see this woman, ain't that her song? <laughs> she realized her massive need. She goes in with an offering and tears and a heart. She's in deep deep weeds she realizes how much she needs them and I just want to confess maybe you would be with me oh boy forgive me father I can sometimes live Monday Tuesday Wednesday Thursday Friday Saturday I can live through a week and not even realize how much I need Jesus I can live through a day or multiple days and not even realize how much I need to do over <laughs> do you need a do-over? Hey, uh, let's try that again. Do you need a do-over? Shake your head up and down. Yeah, yeah. And if the person sitting next to you didn't shake, they just elbow them and say, you need a do-over. <laughs> oh, boy, do you need a do-over? Guys, I just want to pray a prayer this today. And, and it really won't matter for you if you don't pray your own prayer. But I just want to invite you to make a prayer that says, God, I need you. I, I need you.
today I want to claim my do-over. Wash me clean. Tell me, go be at peace. Make me whole. And I will receive it because you can do it. Would you bow your heads with me? Don't worry about your neighbor. Just focus in on your own life. Why don't you claim your own do-over this morning? Father, I, I ask for a do-over. I'm a person of sin, and I live among sinners, and, and I'm flawed, and I make mistakes. I say things I shouldn't say. I, I think thoughts I shouldn't think. I, I do the wrong thing all the time, and I, I just pray, Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would help me have a do-over. Forgive me. Wash me clean. I'm sorry for what I've done. Wash me clean. Forgive me by the water and the word. That song we sang earlier, nothing but the blood. Would you apply your blood to all my sins? Would you wash them away? And the sin that had been like scarlet, would you make it clean for me? Would you forgive me? I claim my do-over today. Make me whole. And oh, Jesus, would you help me? Would you help me to have eyes that see the people, that, I mean, that really see people around me? To see who they really are? Not what society says they are, not what, not what they think they are, but would you help me to see the nobodies? And would you help me to be a vessel to be used by you, to point them to you? Oh, God, give me eyes to see. I thank you, Jesus, that you're in the do-over business. And I thank you that you will forgive us and wash us clean. And we just invite you today, flood us, use us, mold us, forgive us, set us anew on mission. Help us to be your people where we, go, where we go to school, where we go to work. Help us to be your people. I pray this in your name, Jesus. And Lord, in the next few minutes as we give towards your mission and your ministry, help us to give generously. Help us to give with full and generous hearts. and Help us to give extravagantly like that woman did because you've done so much already in our lives. We give to you. Multiply it beyond our reach. And may great things be done in the name of Jesus through our gifts. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.